there was something that, that happened at VBS on Thursday that was um, one of those moments where the Lord revealed something so absolutely clear to, clearly to me that it actually took me off guard. Um, I was minding my own business teaching some of the, the second and third graders, and we were having a great time, and we were talking, and then I gave them a little, uh, little exercise, which I'll tell you about in a couple minutes. And, and as it happened, as I was going through that, and they were doing what they were doing, it, it, was, it was like a flashing light just blinded me in the eyes with a spiritual principle. And I was so excited about it um, because it had some some lasting ramifications. I'll tell you about it in a couple of minutes, but let me just tell you, we had such a great time getting to know those kids this week. And I really feel like of all the VBSs we've done, I think this was number six or seven, um, that, I, that I actually got to, to spend time with the kids and get to know them and hear their thoughts. And I had a blast teaching them every day. And they listened really well. You've trained them well, um, except when they have fidget spinners in their hand, then they're just out of control, but that's okay. Um, but they really, they really understood the concepts that we were studying. And I want to just give you a quick overview because I want you to know if, they, if you haven't talked to them what they studied. On day one, we talked about God as creator. We talked about the uniqueness not only of the objects in the, in the universe, but also in each of us, that we were created in God's image and that he wants a relationship with us. Then on day two, uh, we kind of visually demonstrated that, that our relationship with God was, was corrupted and blocked by sin, and that the sin was our responsibility, and that sin has eternal consequences. So the relationship that God wants to have with us, created in his image, now is broken. On day three, we learned that God could have let us just have the punishment we deserved because he's holy and we're not, and we were guilty and there was no way out. But because of his love and mercy, which we just sang about, he chose to intervene and he sent Jesus. And Jesus was verified by the fact that he fulfilled 355 prophecies. All the kids should have learned that number this week. And if they haven't already told you 100 times, ask them at lunch today, what's the number 355? And watch their faces light up and they'll tell you. And on day four, we demonstrated that sin has kept us in spiritual darkness. We turned off the lights in the room, and it was completely dark, and then we shined a flashlight to represent the fact that Jesus had come at the light of the world as Emmanuel, God in flesh, to reconcile us to God. The word reconcile meaning to make it right. To, and we use an example of a purchase that I made, and that if the bank had said I paid $40, but my receipt said I paid 12 that that was wrong. That had to be reconciled. And the relationship with God has to be made right. And that we can be saved and forgiven of all our sins when we trust Christ and Savior. And it was such a joy that day to see seven kids give their lives to Christ. It was just, just such a blessing. And then on day five, we studied that those who are saved will live for the Lord because they love the Lord. And because they're grateful for him, that obedience is not just obligation and something we're commanded to do. It's something we love to do because we love the Lord. And that even though after we're saved, we sin sometimes, that we should do that less and less as we mature. Now, as I said, our, our visual demonstration on day four was about sin and how God erases sin through Christ. But it will... Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of save what happened until we study through our text of the morning. So let's take our Bibles, turn, if you haven't already, to Matthew 
chapter 19. And I want to just spend a couple minutes in this text because it will be familiar to you, but uh, it just really came alive on Thursday. Now, as you look at the text, starting in verse 16, we'll read in a minute, you'll see that right before that, directly before that, not coincidentally, um, that Jesus had been interacting with little children. And he had been talking to them. And the disciples had kind of rebuked him and said, look, get these kids out of here. They're, they're antsy. They're climbing all over you. You know, kids do that, right? And, and they're running around. And Jesus, we got important things to do. So get these kids out of here. And Jesus says, no, wait a second. You need to understand the important spiritual principle here. You, as disciples, you as followers of me, need to have the mindset of these kids. You need to have that purity and that innocence of heart, and you need to have that, that trusting faith that little kids have, that, that, that confidence they have in the one who's taking care of them. So Jesus teaches them about that using kids. That's not, again, coincidental, leading into our passage. And right after he leaves the kids, a man comes running up to him, and he wants to know about eternal life. And as Matthew will detail, this man was very wealthy, but he had also been very diligent to live a committed religious life. So let's read the account. Matthew 19, starting verse 16. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing should I do that I may obtain eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then the man said, Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, should not commit adultery, should not steal, should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus says in verse 21, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Now the question that this man asks at the outset, what do I have to do? I'll emphasize the word do. What do I have to do to obtain eternal life? That question has a faulty premise. It assumes that there's something we can do to earn our way into heaven. Now this is kind of the default conclusion that so many people in the world accept as correct. But it's interesting that nobody in history has ever come up with a definitive answer. What do we have to do to get into heaven? Nobody has ever come up with a, with a fail-proof answer for that. And the typical assumption is, well, I just have to live a good life, which means that I'm pretty moral and that I haven't killed anybody and that I go to church with some consistency. Now, the problem is, as I explained to the kids, that in my 53 years, I have committed somewhere in the vicinity of 600,000 sins. Now, I personally think that number's a little bit low. So let's say 600, 700, 750, anybody want to vote for a million sins that Paul Rhodes has committed? I see those hands. Thank you, Sean. So let's say, just for grins, that I've committed a million sins. So I'm going to stand before God when I die, and I'm going to say, yeah, Lord, I've got a million sins, but I've been pretty good. I, I've, been, I've been really good. I went to church a lot, 
and I read my Bible once in a while, and, and I kind of did some good things, never killed anybody, never, never went to jail. I, I was pretty good. So maybe you can just kind of overlook those million offenses and, and, and just kind of let me slide. It's absurd to think that, that that would be convincing to the holy God. So as Jesus responds to this man, look back at the text, he does so by kind of walking him down the path of his fallacious argument to show him that he's chasing the wrong goal. Now we do need to give this man a little bit of credit because everything in the text suggests that he's very sincere, his heart really seems to be kind of right, he really has a desire to have eternal life, and he's really made some effort, he's worked hard to, to, to be religious. But Jesus tells him that to be acceptable to God, of course he would have to perfectly keep the commandments because nothing short of absolute faultless obedience to the law would be good enough to satisfy God's perfection. The Bible says if there's one sin, you're guilty. There's one sin. Well, I don't have a million like you. You're crazy. I've only got 300,000. No, it doesn't matter. One's enough. One does it. Now, of course, he knows that while the man, to his credit, has been very strong in his obedience, he knows that none of us is perfect and blameless. So Jesus is going to show that it is more than just rote obedience. So look at verse 18. When the man says that he's been faithful to adhere to the commandments that Jesus lists, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. Interesting, that one's in there and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, all right, well, there's one more test. Apparently, you've done really well. It's one more test of your heart, one more test of your commitment to really live for the Lord. Look at it again in verse 21. Jesus says, you need to go sell all that you have, and you need to give it to the poor, and you need to follow me. Now, before we kind of analyze that, it's important to notice that Jesus does not say, if you do that, that will earn you heaven. He just wants to show the man that, that his sincerity and his, and his obedience is not going to be enough. He's going to have to get rid of something else in order to follow Christ. And once we understand that, there are a few other misconceptions that we need to, to clarify. First of all, very important, the passage does not teach that every believer has to sell everything in order to follow Christ. As we'll see, this was just a, the, the, the valuable priority that this man had that was holding him back from giving his life completely to Jesus. So in this man's case, the issue was wealth. We'll talk about some of the other issues in a couple minutes. So, so he's not saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be a Christian. you got to sell everything you have and live an ascetic, nomadic life and just kind of exist because I'm telling you, you got rid of everything. Jesus does not say that. Second thing he does not say is that it is wrong for a Christian to be wealthy. Though he does make it very clear in verse 23 that it's incredibly hard for a person who is wealthy to be a deeply committed, self-sacrificing Christian because the love and the lure of money will corrupt the heart so easily. The third thing he says is that, the third thing I want you to notice, excuse me, is that it is very likely that this man would have been willing to give up maybe a large chunk of his wealth in order to follow Jesus. 
But what he was willing to do and what he needed to do were two very different things. See, he may have said, if Jesus had said, I tell you what, give half of your wealth away to the poor and then come follow me. The man might have said, boy, that's a pretty heavy price, but okay, I'll do that. I'll, I'll give up half my wealth like Zacchaeus did three times what he owed. I'll give it up and I'll follow you. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to abandon everything. Now, just 13 chapters before, in chapter 6, Jesus has said that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So he knew that this man's wealth and this man's possessions had become his preoccupation. And now he's testing that whether holding on to that is more valuable than following Jesus. I want you to get that sentence in your head. He's asking whether what he has is more valuable than following Jesus. Now, sadly, this man followed kind of the typical pattern, and we see it here in verse 22. He walked away from Jesus. He abandoned what conviction he had of living for God. And I want you to notice one verse in verse 22. He says that it says that he did so grieving. And that is a very interesting word in the original language that this is written in. And I want you to get this because there are two meanings. One is logical and one maybe is a little unexpected. The word grieving here logically means full of sadness and sorrow. But it also has a little hint of being offended. So he's grieving. Jesus says, you're going to have to give up everything. When you give up everything, you can follow me. Your life will be wonderful. You'll be content. I'll fulfill you. It will be great. And the man goes away grieving, which means he's sad. He's sorrowful. He's kind of broken that that's what it's going to require. And there's, there's a little tinge of resentment, a little tinge of being offended. So he's overwhelmed. His heart is, is sad with despair and mourning that, that instead, uh, that, that, that it, what is required is a, is a full sacrifice. And he's a little irritated about that. He's hurt and he's despondent that the price is, is too deep. Some people will think that any requirement's too much. Some people reject God out of hand because they don't think God has a right to ask anything of us. But I really believe that deep down, most people have an interest in what is needed for eternal life. But when they find out that it requires handing your life over to the Lord and, and letting Him be Lord, when they find that out, they, they kind of pull back because that thought is too painful. Even some Christians, even some people who have confessed Christ will look at it and say, I'm willing to go part way. I'm willing to give some, but, but I'm not willing to give all. We studied that in Revelation, right? That, that you're not hot, you're not cold. You're just kind of on the fence, kind of waffling, kind of going back and forth. Listen, we can't expect to be saved and forgiven and cleansed and changed and indwelt by the Spirit and adopted by God and secured forever as his own child after Jesus voluntarily sacrificed his life for us. We can't expect to receive all of that and then give God partial. 
We can't say, well, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for purifying me. Thank you for taking away my sins, throwing them as far as these east is from west, so there's no more record. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, the sacrifice that you made. It was so wonderful. But I'm going to take the gift, but I'm not going to sacrifice anything. I just want to take, I just want to have, but, but, but you're asking me to give everything back? Mm, don't think I can do that. Of course there has to be an abandonment of our life. Because our old life is corrupted by sin, and it's what caused us to offend the Lord and be estranged from Him in the first place. And of course there's going to have to be a definitive change in our heart. The Spirit's already initiated that. He's already renewed our heart and changed our nature. But we have to continue on in that renewal, not refilling our hearts and minds with what's filthy. And of course, there will need to be a major realigning of our priorities because what is here on earth now no longer has any value to us. What car I drive, what home I live in, what clothes I wear, where I work, how much money's in my bank account, how successful my kids are, none of that matters because the Bible says don't lay up your treasures here because the moths and rust will come in and corrupt it. Lay up yourselves treasures in heaven. So now our goal and our focus has shifted away from the earth to heaven. So we're going to have to readjust our priorities. And of course, there will need to be very careful awareness of our testimony. Because as those who hold on to the name of Christ, we represent him to everybody. And we never want to do anything to dishonor him or to cause people to question the validity of our sal salvation and sanctification. I never want anybody to look at my life and say, boy, I don't know about roads. It just doesn't, it doesn't seem real. He looks just like me. What, why, why would I do that? See, nothing, look back at the text for a minute, nothing about the expectations is unreasonable in any way. In fact, we should see them not only as the logical outcome of our salvation, but we should also see them as an honor and a privilege, as the joyful outcome of being allowed to be named a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is, is the appeal of our selfish, worldly, pleasure-centered life. And that is very strong. And even after we've made a profession of faith, there is still that temptation and that pull. And there's a wide gamut of, uh, of emotional and physical lures that not only entice us to, to give ourselves part way to the Lord, but also to hold on to our possessions. I want to give you a list, and if you're taking notes, uh, write these down. If you're not, write them down. So everybody should be writing down at this point. And these will be familiar. This isn't groundbreaking this morning, but the Lord's really laid it on my heart. There, there are some possessions that we try to hold on to. And maybe it's not wealth like the rich young ruler, but, but it's one of these or multiple of these. The first one is pride and having to be right. Pride in having to be right. If you've ever had conflict in your marriage, you know that this one's in play, right? Pride in having to be right. This may be the most dangerous one of them because along with the second one, they're the, they're the original sins of the Garden of Eden. So, so the first possession we try to hold on to is our ego and our pride and wanting to be right. The second one is wanting power and status. 
wanting power and status. And this one could be very, very subtle. But remember that the appeal to Adam and Eve was that they would no longer need God because what? They would be God. The appeal to power and status, the ultimate appeal to man's pride is to be the man, to be the one, to be, to be in charge, to be in control. And that's the one uh, possession number three that we hold on to is control. Control. We want it. We think we need it. We're not satisfied till we have it. We don't care who we hurt to get it. And once we have some semblance of it, we don't think it's enough. And if you don't believe that is true, and if you don't believe that is the doctrine of our culture, ask yourself why Apple and Nike and Facebook and the government all keep trying to get bigger and bigger and have more and more of a monopoly and have more control of our lives. Why does Facebook need to have control of my life? But you think about it, and you look at the culture. Do you know most of the companies in our country are controlled, I forget the number, by like 14 conglomerates? Why is that? Why do mom and pop stores keep closing? Why do the, the, even the big box stores now are closing? Because more and more, there's a grab for power. More and more, there's a grab for control. The government wants more control. The companies want more control. And we're giving up more and more voluntarily. Here, have my apps. Here, have my information. Here, I'll tell you when my birthday is. Here, I'll tell you when my social security number. Here's my cell phone number. I'll tell you where I am right now. Do you know now, I think it was a Snapchat or something. Now it identifies where the person is as they're, as they're texting. And now there's a privacy concern because a 14-year-old girl might be sending a Snapchat and now other people can see where she is. And we're giving it to them. Here, just have it. Number four, the fourth possession we crave is vices. We strongly desire pleasure, whether it's through sexual fulfillment or alcohol or smoking or drugs, no matter how much it costs us spiritually. Or we protect our time and our priorities and our vacations at the expense of spiritual growth or at the expense of serving the Lord. I praised the Lord last week. We had 44 volunteers for VBS. Are you kidding me? In a church this size, 44 of you gave your week? That's phenomenal. Let's be careful that we don't allow our time and our priorities to rob us of that joy of serving. And even though we aren't a church with wealthy people, maybe we crave materialism. Maybe deep down we have that desire to possess the best things and travel to the best places and be around the best people. So we have pride. We want to be right. We want power and status. We want control. We like our vices. And fifth, we want relationships. But we want relationships on our terms. We're not as naturally loving and sacrificial and altruistic as we picture ourselves. How do I know that? I know that because the divorce rate is rampant. Families are broken. Infidelity is normal. Pornography is out of control. Crime is going up and up. And we claim that we need each other, and we claim that we want to love somebody, but oftentimes the evidence contradicts that claim. Now what's behind all of this? A simple three-letter word, sin. And all of it, can be so much more valuable to us than living for the Lord. Look back at verse 22, because this man had materialistic desires. He probably had a need for power and status and control. 
that, that at this point transcends his desire for eternal life. And even though he may not have seen that way, he was willing to sacrifice the security of God's grace and the security of God's blessing in order to hold on those possessions. Now, look back at the list that you just hopefully wrote down. Which one or ones of those are the weights that are holding you down? Which one or ones of those are causing you to grieve that you might have to give them up to seriously walk with Christ? Maybe you aren't grieving. Maybe you've just decided, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give them up. You're going to take a chance that it's not that big a deal to the Lord, that God's gracious and praise the Lord, and I know God's going to forgive me because he's loving and he doesn't want to see me go to hell, and, and if I hold on to them, it's not going to be that big a deal, and I can still be a disciple. Let me tell you, that's a gutsy play. Especially in light of the text. Because here, and in Luke 14, Jesus says, if I'm not more important than that, and you're not willing to give that up to follow me, then his words, you are not worthy to be my disciple. If you don't love me more than those things, if you're not willing to give them up for me, then I'm not going to claim you. You're going to get to heaven, and you're going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I don't know who you are. Now, that's sobering, but that's the word of God. And You and I can answer how much we love the Lord. We can evaluate how much we love the Lord by asking one question. What is the one thing that I would not be willing to give up completely if Jesus said, I have to have it for you to follow me? What's the one thing where you go, come on, Paul, you're being too, it's, it's June, it's gorgeous outside, we just had a great VBS week, why are you being down on me? I'm not being down on you this morning. This is the conviction the Lord's given us this morning. What's the one thing you say, I'm not, I'm not willing to give that up? Whatever that answer is, whoever that answer is, let me tell you this morning, that has become a God to you. And it may not be a tangible idol that you bow down to like they did in the Old Testament. And you may even say, that's a little strong this morning. You're calling it a God. You're calling it an idol. But that's exactly what it is. And do you remember what the first commandment God gave us was? You will have no other gods before me. The reason I took such a long time to list those categories is because we need to see these as idols. Not as stone or metallic statues that are placed in the wilderness, but as anything or anyone, listen now, that we have greater devotion to and place in greater priority than our Savior. And I want to tell you how the Lord profoundly and amazingly illustrated this this week with, with stunning clarity. Stunning clarity. You may have noticed that the title of the message this morning is Clinging to the Balloon. Kind of a strange title. I struggled a little bit with whether I should use it because I didn't want to seem uh, flippant or absurd. But that's really what happened this week. Jesus spoke in parables. He used everyday objects to get the spiritual point across. And I want to tell you, I felt this very strongly this week with the second and third grade class. We were talking about sin and how we only have one life, so I gave them each a balloon. I said, you're only getting one balloon because you only have one life. And what I want you to do is take a Sharpie, and I want you to start to write 
your sins on it. For the younger kids, I said, just draw X's. Just draw a bunch of X's all over the place. I wanted them to see how our sins add up and how our sins make us unworthy to be saved on our own. I said, you know what? If it was my balloon, you wouldn't see any balloon. You'd just see black because I have 600,000 sins or a million sins or however many we want to say. So there's not going to be any yellow on my balloon. It's just going to be solid black. Then I said to them, I want you to take a toothpick and I want you to pop the balloon. Because that's going to represent what God is willing to do through Jesus. That he will take all our sins and that he will remove them by his grace. Well, as we're doing this, because like, oh, you have to pop the lens. You, you know, balloon fragments are flying everywhere. There was one little girl right in front of me. Sweet girl. And she said, I don't want to pop my balloon. And she was kind of literally sad, kind of pouting, not being a brat. She just was like, I love my balloon. And she was clinging to her balloon because she was sad to see it go. And I kept saying, we need to pop the balloons like you're messing up my principal here. I popped the balloon already. (laughs) Trying to teach you kids. But she was so attached to that balloon that she was literally hugging it. And she put her face up against it. And it was at that point that the Spirit of God said, Paul, there's your opportunity. There it is. And all of a sudden, the spiritual principle was so clear that I said, all right, everybody, stop for a minute. Stop, stop, stop. Shh. Pop, 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 balloon, balloon. Stop, sit down, sit down for a second. There's something the Lord wants to teach us here. I said, she doesn't want to pop her balloon. And let me tell you, that represents the decision that every one of you is going to have to make with your life. Whether or not you are going to cling to your sins, not willing to let go of them, and receive God's grace, which will cleanse you of those. Or whether you are going to find joy in renouncing them and having God claim you as his own. Now I'm like, oh, I'm such a good teacher. She was not convinced. She was not convinced. And all of a sudden, I saw this as more than a love for a balloon. Now this eight-year-old child was expressing something spiritual. And I said, I tell you what, if you pop your balloon with the sins on it, I'll give you a new one. And finally she did. And then immediately she said, I want my new balloon. Okay. I want a new balloon, Pastor. I want to give me a new balloon. Everybody got a new balloon. I said, you can't play with them because you're going into sync. Don't, don't blow them up. But when she got the new balloon, she clung to it even more fervently. Then we walked into the final assembly. And the final assembly was where Julie explained the gospel again. And then she said, we've already had one little girl trust Jesus today, which was so precious. And I had been in with Adam counseling her, or actually Adam counseling her, I had been watching. And then we walked back into final assembly, and Julie's saying, if you want to make a decision for Jesus, if you want to trust Jesus today, based on what you've heard this week, would you raise your hand? Kids raise their hand, praise the Lord. 
She said, would you get up and would you go with some of our leaders? And they're going to take you and they're going to talk to you about what that means. So Tony Yako took a group back here. Scott Yako took a group out there. And I was closer, so I kind of tagged along with that group. I didn't know who was in it. When I get out there, guess who's in the group? That's right. You know where this is going, right? And there she was. And Scott talked to her and two other girls about this decision that they were making, and he prayed with them. And then the Spirit spoke to me again, and I said to her, you still have that balloon? She said, yeah, had it in her palm. I said, that now represents your life in Christ. And are there any marks on it? She said, no. And she got a big smile. Isn't that awesome? How many know that the Holy Spirit can deep, teach deep spiritual truths even with the balloon? She got it, and it was no coincidence, listen, I'm done, it, it was no coincidence that she had clung to that old balloon because that's what sin tempts us to do. It tempts us to hold on and keep possession of the old life and to, and to hold it as more important than the Lord and to even be defensive and kind of uptight, like, you're not taking my balloon. No, I don't, no I'm, I'm not popping that balloon. That balloon's mine. That's what sin does. But I want to tell you, like that girl on Thursday, clinging to those sins is holding you back from loving the Lord and walking with him. And that is not a sustainable position. It will catch up with you, and it already is. And I want to tell you this morning, and I want to encourage you this morning, and I want to challenge you this morning, it is time to pop that balloon spiritually. Unlike the rich young ruler who said, oh, I don't know if I can do it. It's so important to me. I'm so wealthy. I... <sighs> Grieving in his heart, sad, sorrowful, even a little resentful. I can't do it. I'm going to squander eternal life. I'm going to squander God's blessing. I'm going to squander God's presence. I'm going to squander eternal life because this is more important. And he never looks back. There's no, there's no regret. This is the wrong decision. Wait a second. What am I doing? What am I doing? Jesus is willing to give me eternal life. What am I doing? Why would I hold on to this? Hugging the balloon. What is it for you this morning? What are you holding on to that you're grieving that you don't want to give up to follow Christ?